I'm Philippe de Montebello, a gallery director at Aquavella Galleries, and it is my pleasure to welcome you once again to the picture, Conversations with Aquavella Galleries. For this episode of the Picture Podcast, we'll hear a conversation between artist Tom Sachs and writer Nomi Fry, recorded on a rainy Friday evening over Mescal at Tom Sachs' cavernous studio workshop in New York. Tom and Nomi spoke on the occasion of the new exhibition Tom Sachs, Handmade Paintings, on view at Aguavella Galleries from November 5th to December 18th. Although painting has long been a focus of his practice, this exhibition, Tom Sachs' first with a gallery, focuses exclusively on his paintings. His work is lovingly and conspicuously handmade, showing scars and imperfections that tell the story of how his art came into being, thus removing it from the sanitized realm of miraculous conception. His team of studio assistants has been described as a cult, worshipping plywood, buzzsaws, and the Ten Bullets, a list of edicts that are essential to creating and collaborating as a close-knit studio. As a staff writer at The New Yorker, Nomi Fry covers pop culture, art, books, movies, anything that catches her eye as one of her generation's leading culture writers. Their conversation touched on Sachs's love of The Simpsons, his early years recreating Mondrian paintings with duct tape, and why, according to Sachs, creativity is the enemy. Thank you for joining us. Hi, Tom Sachs. Hi, Nomi. Hi. I'm sitting here with Tom Sachs at a studio in Soho. I'm Nomi Fry. I wrote a catalog essay for Tom's show that we're very excited about. And we're going to talk a little bit about Tom's painting and about Tom's work in general and some of the things that he finds interesting and that have influenced him over the course of his career and some of his uh, desires and passions. And one thing that I was thinking about when I was looking at the paintings and we were talking about them when I did my first studio visit with you before writing the piece about you are the paintings of American flags that you have in the show. And we were talking about those paintings and you said, painting an American flag is like a power gesture, right? It's like a power trip. And I said to you in response to that, that I totally understand it because like, you know, the 20th century, which is when both of us kind of came into adulthood, I guess, is the American century, right? And now things might be a little bit different. We might be in a kind of post-empire mode. And especially now that we're kind of like heading into election season (laughs) (laughs) and America is uh, in many ways on the brink. (laughs) I was wondering about your attitude and feelings towards America since you're such an American artist who deals with so many American icons. When you asked the question, I immediately started to cringe because (laughs) of my intense ambivalence about the power symbol. It's kind of the ultimate brand. So I simultaneously view it as this symbol of power and domination, but it's also a little bit like the Confederate flag or the Nazi flag mm-hmm. or something. It makes mm-hmm. me it makes me uncomfortable. And I remember 
on so many trips to Europe always being, um, I had friends who would always put like uh, Canadian patches on their backpacks because mm-hmm. they were paranoid. Or if Obama was president, you know, people would give you a hug because they loved Obama so much. So I, I think it's important to feel both of these things at once or these two directions simultaneously. That's what makes it meaningful. You know, the revulsion and the attraction of it. And then, of course, to paint it is a wonderfully sensual experience because it's, it's got the best colors. I mean, there's only one flag that's better, but we don't talk about that one. What is it? You know, the... The, the, the hammer and sickle? No, the, the <laughs> one, one, one worse. You know, the really awful one. Yeah. The, the red one with a circle and the X in the middle. Right. But I think it's important maybe to talk about that because the branding of the Third Reich is so successful. Yeah. And that was such one of the great lessons of that time was that you could have this the most toxic, worst thing. You could sell it to people and make them believe if it looked good enough. Yeah. And I think that's an important lesson for us in the age of advertising, which is the 20th and 21st century will continue Mm -hmm. to not forget that lesson. Yeah. It's interesting because uh, when you're talking about the Reich and the branding of it, you know how as a Jew, much like yourself, you know, I have always looked to... Nazism is the ultimate, it's the ultimate evil, whether you're a Jew or not. But aesthetically, let's say, there is something that is overtly rejecting people like ourselves, right? Uh, with the, the kind of idea of this lie that Germans are like blonde and blue-eyed. Yeah. Which sometimes they are, but often they're not. You know, like if you also look at the Nazi party leadership, that wasn't necessarily the case. All Jews. All like look like Jews. And yet there was something so obviously influential about that messaging. And that had to do with a kind of um, power and the powerful lie of what you referred to as like branding or advertising, which is something you deal with in your work as well. Not necessarily dealing with the Nazi party, but dealing with American icons you know, looking at the paintings in this show, whether it's an Air Force One matchbook or a Reese's package or a Snickers bar, whatever the case may be, is, you know, you're kind of like reiterating or like reinvigorating these like branding icons. But it's also interesting to think about how you do it. Like, what is it about the way you repaint them? redraw them, reappropriate them, that makes them different. I think one of the things about the Third Reich that was so compelling was the purity of the uh, the way it kind of made the human condition perfect. Like I remember when I was an adolescent, I imagined what sex was going to be like. I thought it was going to be like one of those um, Ron Nagel drawings <laughs> in Playboy with those super clean lines. And then when it finally happened, I realized that it had a smell. You know, that yeah. it was human beings. It wasn't this clean, like, mm-hmm. science fiction fantasy. Because, of course, I was, as a kid, you just, your mind dreams of what it could be. But it's it's much the human condition, whether it's sex or just walking down the street or whatever, is extremely visceral. Uh, and that's hard to sell because it's um, it's complicated. So advertising, whether it's for a political movement or 
for a candy bar, you simultaneously want to sell sex without the dirty reality of it, mm-hmm. without having to clean it up. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's why, or the uniforms of, the, or the the fantasy of the Aryan perfect person are so compelling. But for me, I paint these things to show the flaws because we're human. And I my my strategy is to lean into that. In the twenty first century, let's say if one of the things that we're really starting to understand about this time, pretty clearly, or if we call this time this time of the singularity is how with the algorithm we're all being sort of fed into as many categories as possible and the the, the loss there's a loss of humanity and, and differentiation where you know if you look through your Instagram photos that you take now versus the ones that you took in the beginning there I think about that a lot actually yeah. yeah the first ones like those are the pictures that everyone took and then slowly you find your vision and yeah. it's and it's harder Mm-hmm. And, and you become more critical if if you're active with it because it's hard to find something that's uniquely yours because that cappuccino that was such a thrill is <laughs> it's everywhere. So if there's one message in this is to lean into the individuality. And so for me, it's my lack of skill. And then do lack of skill for long enough, you get really good at it and finding ways to express that. So you know, one of the things that I always do is I use like white out mm-hmm. to to correct and then, but it, the, it, but it clashes, mm-hmm. and the clash is important, not only as the soundtrack but as the phenomenon of showing the repair, so that there's more evidence that you exist. Yeah, no, the evidence that you exist is like, I think that's an important thing, right? Well, one of the main aspects of modernism or of any time probably is dehumanization, and one of the mm-hmm. one of the most important slogans of the civil rights movement. The the last time was I am somebody and that I, I exist. Yeah. And I think that is ever as present now as it's ever been, but it, it, apl- it applies to all of us because the algorithm doesn't like us being individuals. It wants us to be all the same because yeah. it sells. Whenever I speak to artists, I always would encourage them to get rid of the, the CNC machine or the digital printer and, mm-hmm. and work towards things that show your individuality because that stuff's happening automatically. Right. But then what about people who are familiar with your work and your method and the way you've been you know, approaching your process for the past, you know, at least two decades is in the studio, you have the 10 bullet system, right? Which is where you have a kind of laid out process for yourself and the people who work with you, you know, you have 12 assistants, I believe, you you lay out some rules that people need to follow when they participate in your studio work. And so there is some sort of tension there probably between, you know, your own desire for individuality and, you know, doing things that aren't perfect and, and you know, not feeding into the algorithm and so on. And then the people who work for you, who you want to answer to a certain set of yeah, uh, uh, strictures, which also might relate to your mantra of like uh, creative creativity is the enemy. There's huge contradictions in, right. in here. So, so there are a dozen of us. We're like a coven, mm-hmm. and 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 but we're also a teaching hospital. And that there are people here that are better welders than me. That are that are better at communicating and making deals and and um, are more polite and are even better at drawing. So 
all the people here make the work better than I could do myself. Mm. Within that, creativity is the enemy because it's important that we stay focused so that the things that we produce have a cohesive, singular vision. Otherwise, it's too confusing. So mm-hmm. ultimately, I'm the editor. But I also believe that creativity is a spice and, and you can ruin a dish by having too much chili pepper and you just need a little bit. Everything else is just hard work and incremental innovation, mm-hmm. growth slowly, not just because, you, just because you can doesn't mean you should. Mm-hmm. So on one side, I want to stick to the rules. On the other side, be open to them. And I think that's be open to lucky accidents. Mm-hmm. The the ten bullets, which are most of them, are normal things like be on time and clean up after yourself. But some of them are more contradictory, like show the evidence of your work. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the ways that I found to find greater humanity in the work, but yet precision, is to introduce an artificial measure of speed to encourage errors that are then corrected. Honestly. There's this really bitchy uh, carpenter's axiom, there's never time to do it right, but always time to do it again. Mm-hmm. That my, my master carpenter, when I was a carpenter, they, they would always say that to me because I was always rushing to get it through as a kind of admonition. And, and I, I've sort of taken that as instructions. Yeah. Uh, do, it, do it fast, fuck it up and fix it and, 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 show, and leave that repair. Because Apple can never have that. Those products have to be perfect. I wouldn't want one. I wouldn't want an Apple with a scratch screen new. Right. Although it's kind of cool to have like, yeah, maybe not new, but, but it's kind but of cool rock, to have like a fucked up. like Yeah. Like when you meet someone on a date and they've got a cracked screen, you know they know how to party. Yeah. I mean, I had a cracked screen on my <laughs> phone for a really long time. Like I couldn't see hardly anything. And it was just, <laughs> I just rolled with it. Of course you did. Yeah, of course I did. Yeah. No, but it's um, it's a it's a scar of labor, and yeah. it's also saying it's communicating clearly to the people around you that that you have other priorities than having a perfect phone, right? And like using it or doing your life. Yeah, but there's also a yearning for the perfect, whatever it is, sculpture, Ar- Arian, painting, Aryan princess, Aryan princess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you got yeah. it, Tom. Yeah. yeah, it's the same. It's the same thing as yearning for the perfect Aryan princess and yearning for the perfect phone. It's it's a it's a perfection and it's, it's imagined and it's sold to you because people are selling jeans that are pre-worn and broken in leather and uh, there's all kinds of advertising selling the mythology of blue-collar work. Yeah. Tons of it. Rock and roll. The distortion, the sound of the distorted guitar is the sound of a, a mistake that's yeah. been elevated to the highest levels of profit. I mean, you were mentioning modernism before, briefly, and I was wondering about if you're thinking about the kind of like perfect proportions and the the sort of the ideal modernism, which is almost like a spiritual thing, yeah. right? How do you relate to that? Well, I'm I, sitting on this yeah. chair, by the way. You know, that's your chair. What's it? What's it called? It's it a has shop a, chair. It's a shop chair, right? But it's. Evolve from modernist iconography. It's like an Ames evolution. Yeah. So you definitely, you know, are are kind of engaging with this legacy. I am, but like the more I dig into the Bauhaus, like they're fucking freaks, right? Say more. 
Well, the, you know, they would like eat all this blue food and stuff, and they would, like li- cool. load it with garlic so it wouldn't taste as bad. And then they all stunk of garlic. I mean, these were dirty hippies. Of I course, love it. that that was really what was going on. But yet, they invented the most, you know, Barcelona Pavilion, whatever, like Seagram's building, like, the, the most. The most iconic, iconic. It's the most iconic representation of modernist values. Mm-hmm. But they were just a bunch of dirty hippies and like, getting kicked out of Germany and moving to New Haven or Chicago or wherever they went. Yeah. So I think that there is a there is a human truth behind all this stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, even you know my my favorite modernist, the you know the second best artist of the twentieth century, Le Corbusier. The, mm-hmm. The, the the recently exposed Nazi sympathizer. I think he just. I don't. I mean, he just wanted to be on the side that was winning. He's like just another Werner von Braun. He just thought that they were going to win, so he. Great. He's playing all sides. Yeah. But besides that, I mean, he was a hip, weird hippie swimming with sharks and making his terrible paintings yeah. while he was making the most important buildings of the 20th century. Right. Right. So he's a complex person. Yeah. It's interesting, like I remember when I used to, I went to grad school in Baltimore and there was a weird, there was like a Mies van der Rohe building there, like an apartment building. And that wasn't far from where I lived and like one of the cool professors lived in it. And we had like one of the department parties there in the lobby that had like all the furniture and it was like really I remember being extremely impressed by it and it was iconic, but it was also part of life in a certain way, which I'm wondering also about your work because it's like there are some things that you've made that are iconic. It might be the sneakers, you know, that you've made with Nike, the Mars Yards, or it might be the chair I'm sitting on, but they're also very much use, usable, like they're well, part of life. I think that they, there's a misconception about modernism that it's all clean and perfect. Mm-hmm. And this is going back to what we're saying about the reality of sex or the, mm-hmm. the human condition. Like we are born, we shit all over the place, and then we die. Like it's human existence is messy. And Le Corbusier described his buildings as machines for living. Mm-hmm. And there was, if you look into it, of course he's maligned because of all of his, like getting, you know, he gets blamed for um, housing projects and there was a like real dehumanizing aspect that's undeniable to modernism. And if you're going to blame someone, I think he's probably the best person to blame because he's kind of like the king of it. But if you look deeper and read into it, his intention anyway mm-hmm. was about making these places really human and fun to live. Mm-hmm. And play, like they're always like the drawings of the people in his buildings. They didn't have clothes on them. You know, he, they were like places where it looked like it would be fun to fuck or to eat or to like live life. And he made places for people to walk above the traffic. The intention was there. I think, I think he was incredibly naive because he didn't understand how greedy developers would be. And they'd take his ideas and mm-hmm. just corrupt them to make the most maximum per square foot profit. So, there's some responsibility that he didn't see that. But I think that, to quote James Brown, it's, you know, it's a, it's a man's world, but it doesn't mean nothing without a woman or a little girl. Like, it's about people and human experience. So that's always what 
um, go-to is, like whether it's like laying the paint by hand so you can see that it's done by a human being instead of like a machine mm. or using screws that you see and don't hide them to, mm-hmm. to evidence that the thing was made. And, and it really comes from a very selfish place of the, you know, the sensual experience of laying paint or of drilling hole and, and bonding materials and feeling that the, the, I mean, I'm going to use the word pleasure of connecting these things because mm-hmm. that's, that's what it's about. Um, and you, it's, it, do you get pleasure from, from making work? Like, is it- yeah, I mean, I, I do projects based on their process. I choose mm-hmm. materials based on how they, I like this kind of plywood, which is seven-ply Aruco, because the top layer is very, very thick. So when it gets dented, it doesn't flake off. It just shows a dent. Mm-hmm. Birch plywood is a very thin layer, which is more refined and smoother. But if you dent it, it tends to chip and ex- expand and get worse. I don't like surfboards. They only get worse. Like, I don't like cars. They do not get better with age. You know, I like things that, like a leather that shows a little evidence of our, of our, of our experience with them. And the, all the thing, every single thing that I make always shows the experience of the making, including mm-hmm. when we make things in the foundry and in factories and stuff. We always try and, and represent the aspect of even the person, the factory or the sewing machine. Find yeah. a way to like, maybe not that individual, but the, but that process of mm-hmm. that person sitting behind there coming through. And I think that's something worth fighting for because that this post-machine age or, or the digital printing age, or I don't, we're in the middle of it, it's too hard to define. Yeah. But the singularity age is about eliminating all that. Mm-hmm. And there's a, there are enough of us, all the people in this room, that have choices to make. And we can, all the people listening to this, can choose those things in their lives. Yeah. How would you suggest to people, if they're not Tom Sachs, to choose that in their lives? What would that look like? Well, the number one thing that everyone needs to do before they look at their phone in the morning, before they have information input into their brains, is to output. So before whatever you do in any work, everyone in this room, before you look at your phone, write in your journal, sing, speak. To a person. Dance, touch clay, whatever. Even if there's no one there, just speak. Just speak like, to yourself. Speak to yourself. Speak to your. Speak into your phone before you check your email. Good luck doing that, right? But the idea of that, the idea is output before input, because then you're channeling your subconscious mind. The eight hours you spent dreaming or whatever is going on in your subconscious mind, the, your irrational mind processing the rational experience of the day before, is your superpower and is the one thing that is in my prediction, will be the hardest thing for AI to reproduce is dreams. Mm-hmm. It'll be the hard because it doesn't make sense because it's random or nonlinear. So that's the one thing that makes us very special. It's very, very powerful. And, and those dreams, I suppose if you study them enough, you'd find patterns in them. I mean, they're dream analysts. All the stories are the same, but, yeah. but they're for sure weird. Do you remember you know, your dreams? If I practice this, or if I'm sinning like the rest of us and looking at Instagram before peeing, no. But if I work on it, it's just, it's just it's a muscle like anything else. And I'm not special. We all have this choice. Yeah. I used to have a dream notebook when I was in high school. Um, a dream book. A dream book, yeah. And it's an idea I stole from my sister. And 
I maybe I should return to that. It's an interesting thing. I mean, the other thing, if you are interested in the dream book, is before going to bed, again, instead of inputting with a screen, read, because it forces you to be active and engaged, even if you are taking something in. There's something so seductive about the screen that it's hard to... I'm not saying it's easy. No, no, no. But and, I'm, and, yeah. I'm, and I'm not going to like lie to you and say that I do this every day and I'm perfect. I mean, I'm as guilty. You're perfect. As, I know I'm perfect, but <laughs> all shucks. <laughs> um, but we, we're all perfect. And uh, it, it's an addiction and we all have it. But um, the issue is when you choose to go there as a way of avoiding other things. And that's when it's... And that's when it gets more complicated. Yeah. What about materials? When you think about, obviously, you're predominantly a sculptor, but in this show, you're painting. And is that different or similar than... I mean, I, I'd like to think that I approach the paintings like in the same way that I do sculptures. Mm-hmm. So I, don't, I use all different techniques with the paintings. And some of them are really a lot like sculptures. Mm -hmm. Like those first Mondrian paintings that I made out of duct tape. Those were sculptures. Right. They were sculptures of a painting. That's interesting. When I first moved to New York, shortly after I saw this amazing exhibition at the Museum of Modern Art, it's a Mondrian retrospective, and I saw Broadway Boogie Woogie and Victory Boogie Woogie and New York City 2 Unfinished, these like the late works of Mondrian, and I was obsessed, and I really wanted one. And I thought, if I wanted to get one, I was going to have to go down to Wall Street and organize a bunch of money to buy one. And it didn't seem like an authentic use of my time. Because I was living in this na- in this space, that room was my bedroom. I had a roommate above, and we just had this side of the building, just this. Oh, wow. You know, this, yeah. And, I w- and Canal Street was all like fake Gucci sunglasses and stuff. And I thought that I would wear, because I, you know, they're $5 instead of $500. And, and I thought, they're not really fake. They're just unauthorized. They're, they're sunglasses. They block out the sun. Maybe they're not as maybe they're not made in Italy. They're made in China, whatever. And so I thought, well, I'm just going to make my own Mondrian because it's not authorized by Mondrian himself, who's been dead for 70 years. But it's still a painting and it still represents a lot of those ideas. Compositionally, it's the same thing. And also, his paintings were terribly executed. He like didn't really know what he was doing. They're all cracked and fucked up. So. I made. My, I love this critique. <laughs> no, it's like technically, <laughs> technically speaking, there was right. so much over underpainting. They're just—he was working them out in real time. He didn't mm. draw them and then execute them. He was working them out and changing them on the canvas. And I don't know that much about his economic condition or his impulsiveness or how drunk sure. he was or whatever. But you could have even then made them better. Like Malevich made them better. And also, he was Dutch, so he kind of didn't like have an excuse. Like those guys, like are like have a history of making paintings right. They know technically yeah. how to do it. So I made my own Mondrians, but instead of using paint, I used gaffer's tape. And if you look behind, you'll see this, my prized possession, my one of my three tape libraries. Wow. That's like, that's the good. There's a lot of tape in this, that's, uh, in this cupboard. That's like, that's the best one in the studio. And it's not even that good. It's a little disorganized. There are 400 rolls of tape there. Give or take 100 rolls. <laughs> But on the top shelf, you'll see those are rolls of 
my favorite kind of duct tape. I like cheap duct tape that you can see the strings in it because um, it's beautiful. It sticks better. There's more texture to it. Better, better duct tape is um, smoother. So I made these sculptures of these paintings out of tape because of the material that I was familiar with, and they, the finished product was extremely authentic, and it was 100% me, um, and it was a form of sympathetic magic because I could not afford a Mondrian, so I made my own, and sure enough, people started to pay attention to them and exchange money for those. Not so much that I could afford a Mondrian, but that I could sustain my life and have a lifestyle certainly better than his. Can you talk about sympathetic magic a little bit? What do you mean by that? So sympathetic magic is an anthropological term. I think a short version of it is voodoo doll or build it and they will come. Sympathetic magic is to to apply a, a degree of faith into an object to represent uh, an outcome. So mm-hmm. you know, push pins into your enemy's um, effigy of your enemy's body to issue harm to them, Burn, make a model of their fort and burn it down. Or the positive side, an ex-voto, make a model of your ailing limb, bring it to your religious practitioner who does incantations and blessings to it and your limb gets better. And that works because if you know from experience, if you believe that you will not heal, you will not heal. Mm-hmm. If you believe you will heal, you might heal. Yeah. And might is like a, a, a foothold towards positive growth and construction. So sympathetic magic is something that I've employed instinctually since I was a child. I remember making a model of a camera for my dad because he right. he really wanted this camera, but he didn't have the money for it, so he got a lesser one. So I made the model of the camera when I was like eight years old out of clay, really shitty, but it said Nikon on it. And then eventually, like, when he got his camera, he gave when when he, he got, shattered what what you gave him. Well, no, okay. no. <laughs> it's like okay. fuck you, Tom. <laughs> but eventually, his camera became mine when I was a photographer, and I eventually bought that camera that he mm-hmm. wanted. And like, mm-hmm. I sort of I, in the time of making that camera or that Mondrian, I was thinking. In sculpture, for every decision, there's a certain number of man hours, right? Mm-hmm. You say, I'm going to make a sculpture, and it takes you a second to think it up, but a week to make it. So you have all these hours where you're making, and it's, and it's laborious, and that's why construction workers listen to classic rock, to like keep their mind off the numbing pain of hammering nails. But if you employ sympathetic magic, you spend that time naturally, without forcing it, thinking about why you're making this thing. Yeah. And all that time becomes a meditation and a positive affirmation f- towards realizing it. And then your subconscious is so wired towards realizing that goal that all the decisions you make, everything, do I eat one French fry or three or five, like are all about achieving your goal of having a painting or whatever, you know, getting, getting the girl, affluence, health, whatever is important to you. And... Um, if you dedicate your entire existence towards believing in something, like you are much more likely to get it than if you're half-assing about it. Right. It's a little bit like the secret. I, that what I just described is the secret. It's a secret. It's the secret. Yeah. It's not you're a secret. You're manifesting. Yeah, and it's it's so simple and profound. 
but there are a lot of tricks that you need to employ to get to that secret. Yeah, and you have to be smart about it as well. Like, you can't be a patsy about it. You should be 1,000% committed. Yeah. So the show that we're talking about, obviously, that, you know, we've convened to talk to each other in honor of, it's a painting show. And so I want to hear from you, Tom, about these particular paintings and your feelings about them in relation to all we've discussed so far. And one, you know, kind of like trope or theme that you have painted kind of over and over again is Krusty the Clown. So maybe do you want to talk about that a little bit? So Herschel Krustovsky. Herschel Krustovsky. Is a character on The Simpsons, um, and he's a Borscht Belt comedian. Um, his dad is a rabbi. That's right. And Yes. And <laughs> do you want to give us more background on well, that? Well, his dad, there is an episode, I think it might be, it's like season four, I think, season three or season four, where... Bart and Lisa discover that Krusty is the son of a rabbi who has renounced him because he became a comedian and did not become, you know, a kind of learned, like either rabbi or like, uh, you know, scholar. scholar. And um, they're estranged. You know, there's like these sort of flashbacks where you see Krusty doing like balloon balloon animals and like the Catskills, you know, um, and the dad is aghast. And uh, they bring them both together, and in the end, both of them sing, like, oh, my papa, like, you know, a beautiful a beautiful episode. So Krusty is a kind of a rogue Jew, if you will, right? And a generally a rogue. Yeah. I mean, Krusty is my alter ego because I'm kind of a successful fuck-up, right? Like, I, dropped out, I didn't drop out of school, but I just barely graduated and with a D-minus average. Are we talking high school now? High school, college, everything. <laughs> I mean, I finally, when I got to college, I was so into sculpture that I got A's because I just made it about sculpture. And then, but everything before that was D minus. And I'm really hedonistic, like Krusty. I mean, he's an alcoholic and he's always like down on his luck. And But he's also like, Brilliant, right? I think he's got a TV show and people like love him. Yeah. And he kind of hates himself. Mm-hmm. And, and when I, I see Krusty, I see, I see myself in that character mm-hmm. in a lot of ways because I wasn't able to, like, I was supposed to be like a surgeon. That mm-hmm. was a great disappointment to my family. And I think I probably would have been an, eh, no, I would not have been a good surgeon. Right. Maybe orthopedic, but not <laughs> neurologist, you know? <laughs> yeah. If you're, if you're dealing with like, you know, you're not dealing with a brain. You're not dealing with anything. Yeah, you're like yeah. a you're like a fisher. Right, you know? <laughs> fisher. So, but you know, in a way, but Krusty also found great success. I mean, he had a TV show, a, a breakfast cereal, summer camp, like all kinds of celebrity endorsements. The like, failed summer camp. Yeah. <laughs> um. So, and Krusty's kind of a do-it-yourselfer. Like he found success on his own terms. Hmm. And so there are a lot of beautiful things about Krusty. Yeah. And Krusty is a romantic, and Krusty knows how to party. <laughs> he really does and, know how to party. Yeah. And so, like, all those things, all those Dionysian qualities are not Like celibate. Jim Morrison. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you'll see paintings of Krusty the Clown in this show. Your selection of themes to portray in the paintings 
for this show? So everything in is a Is it all personal? It's all a self-portrait, really, mm-hmm. because you'll see the eagle's nest painting, mm-hmm. these two eagles, and- is it a paint? It's a paint company, it's a, right? It's, a, it's like a well, it's a, it's, it's kind a, of a made up logo that I that I hybridized from okay. like an old um, like Broadway right here used to be where the um, Nomi's out of mezcal. Broadway right here is where all the gun stores used to be, and all the after World War II, all the military surplus stuff happened mm-hmm. here on on Broadway. And so this was a a logo from an old arms company. All the gun, all the Weapons that you went to 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 fund to um to fuel foreign wars came out of New York City, mm-hmm. and one of those logos I sort of hybridized called Eagles Nest Studios, and the in the Eagles Nest is um the name of the painting studio, mm-hmm. and on this painting you'll see two eagles, one's chained to a rock. This is New York City, 1991, and the other isn't. And, and so, 1991 is when you started painting, right? That's, That's the, sort of like when, you when established. I m- took over the space yeah. in 1991. And that's when I started painting. Seriously, yeah. that's when I began. And so that, that one eagle, the bigger one, is me who's chained to it. And the other one is Oksana, who I've been painting with since, not probably since, since more like 99. Yeah. But the thing is, with the paintings, as well as in generally like your approach or and to figuring yourself throughout art, there's this push and pull between the need for power and perfection and the need to undermine that, mm. if I'm reading it correctly, or at least in, in, in my mind. you know? Well, it's the duality of man thing. It's Apollo versus Dionysus. It's like crusty yeah. is pure Dionysus. Yeah. And on the other side, we got bills to pay. And like... yeah. Like we're Jews, so we know how to make money and like organize Do we? people. <laughs> I wish I did. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's what they blame us for. Right, it's what so, they blame us for. Yeah. Right. But there, it, within all of us, including you. Yeah, I'm you know, a responsible citizen you for sure. Are. You're, yeah. I, I, you you play the fuck up, but you are. Yeah, hardly. no, I'm not a fuck up. I'm <laughs> yeah, but I certainly w- would like to be there. There's a yearning. Towards perfection. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And that's not something that's tenable or even desirable. Right? Well, no, it, it's desirable. Well, it's, 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 desi- but it's But it's only desirable. It's desirable, but it's, it exists, you know, desire as, as this, like, um, placeholder, right? Because when you reach it, you're like, oh, this well, person is actually an idiot. Or, oh, this thing. It's a normal point. Yeah. On a compass. It's like, it's yeah. just a target. It's, it's a target. Yeah. It's a moving target. Yeah. It's a moving target. It's also about a feeling, and art is about a feeling. Mm. There's obviously the rational explanations about the things that you do and and the kind of analytical approach to explaining why you're painting what you're painting. But then there's also a feeling which is ineffable and is is about people kind of sensing the thing that you're sensing. This is a little mystical. I think the the real job is like finding those intuitive decisions, find trusting those things. Mm-hmm. Like trusting yourself to, yeah. to like stick those two things together. Yeah. Trusting yourself to do it to to do it trusting myself to do it my way. Mm-hmm. I mean I 
possess the technical abilities to make it look exactly like a candy wrapper projected. But finding a way to represent enough of it that you can understand it, but enough of it that you can see me is, it's, I don't know, I don't know if it's a taste issue Mm -hmm. or style, because that's a big thing. I think we share a sense of like style. Mm -hmm. Um, It's also just a sensibility. Like you have a certain idea about things you want to put out in the world and you do, and the people who appreciate it do, and it doesn't necessarily have to do with like an intellectualizing of what it is that you're doing. It's sometimes it's more intuitive. I think it's best when it's intuitive, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and, I, and I, I, it's, and it's something that I struggle with my team because with a dozen of us, it's like it's there's, hard. A lot, there's a lot of logistics, and there's yeah. a lot of like, you know, I used to have an axe underneath my table, and it said. <laughs> with a spring-loaded release, and it said, you know, just said, and on it was burned, don't forget who the genius is around here. Because it's very hard to cultivate those intuitive things. It's the most important thing. Without that, this place is shit. Yeah. And so I get really bitchy when everything around me isn't there to cultivate that. Yeah. Because it's so hard. It doesn't even come every single day. But the artist's job is creating a structure around herself, himself, whatever, to allow for when the muse strikes that you can grab that axe and make something happen. But I spend 90% of my time, 98% of my time cultivating a situation so that the 2% can, so that it can sing. Because, I mean, like people always ask, like Marcel Duchamp, Oh, how long did it take you to put that urinal on a pedestal? <laughs> right, right. And he would say, oh, only but a moment, but a lifetime before it in preparation, which I thought was a very, which is exactly right. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can't just put a toilet on top of a pedestal. It had to be the urinal. It had to be that one. And it'd be the right context and the right moment for it to, for it to work as a ready-made. Otherwise, it's just anyone can. And, and, and he would also say anyone can do it, which I also believe. Anyone can do that, but it takes a little work. On behalf of Tom Sachs and Nomi Fry, thank you for joining us for this episode of The Picture, Conversations with Aquavella Galleries. Be sure to subscribe and to listen to previous episodes in the series and visit our redesigned website where you can see online viewing rooms and read news related to upcoming exhibitions and art fairs. From all of us, thank you for listening. Until next time.